where you live so like if you live near like all the like poor trailer parks or you live like in one of the poor trailer parks you're gonna end up going to a school that has like less funding one bus stop exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) we had a one bus stop where the entire bus gets full Welcome to the Nuestro South podcast. This is where we talk about things like, you know, being Latina in the South. No, Latinos. Uh, actually, Latinx. True. This is for us, y'all. The history in this episode is based on the book Corazón de Dixie by Julie M. Wise. I'm Axel. I'm Daisy. And I'm Brian. And we're Latinos in your South, and we are your hosts. Today, our episode picks up where we left off in the last episode, We'll talk about the Mississippi Delta in the 1920s and 30s. And Brian here has a story about someone who fought to obtain the white label to access opportunity in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, So this story picks up with uh, Rafael Landrove already arriving in Gunnison, Mississippi, uh, and trying to make a life for himself and his family. Um, And just like anyone enamored with ambition, not only for himself, but as a part of a growing family, he had a lot of pressure where he was coming from. And he inadvertently participated in breaking the circle of Latinx workers joining sharecropping circles in the community. And in this time, uh, it was Mississippi area, 1920s to 1930s, uh, schools and places are still segregated. And only the all-white schools are really offering an education that didn't lead them straight back into the cotton fields. Um, But back to the school part. Uh, In 1926, the school board in the area uh, made a a ruling that removed Latinos from white schools and basically hurtled them back to square one. Um, And without the local support that they would have had in, like, New Orleans, um, they needed to put in work elsewhere. Uh, So, of course, they needed to play the part of exotic, but still, like, Caucasian foreigner telling the census taker that he was Cuban and not Mexican. And this is really to separate uh, him and his family from like the now complicated Mexican identity. So it was sort of become, he, it sort of became like a masquerade of class. Uh, he would then gain attention appealing to Mexican bureaucrats, the New Orleans consul, and then in turn the nation of Mexico. And um, like he actually had his kids enrolled in the following fall because of the authoritative power of a nation uh, versus the single U.S. state of Mississippi. So was there any backlash uh, whenever Rafael enrolls his kids in the white school? Can you, I don't know. I imagine was it sort of like accepted? Um, how did that go for him? Kind of like the whole ordeal of enrolling his kids in the white schools. So uh, there's some weird just like confusion to ask to what happened because his kids actually did go to the white school when they first arrived and then um this was actually a few a few years after the ruling in 1926 um and just it might have been some administration issue uh but then they realized hey they're latino you all must go to uh the black school like we can't have that so um a whole school board and the town and the laws uh, going against Rafael Landrove, um, like, against one man and one family, like, uh, he couldn't really argue directly with them because he would just get a no. So who did he argue with or how did he how did he take them on? So um, very, um, as like an anomaly, uh, he 
tried getting support from the nearest consul, which was in New Orleans. In Mississippi, they didn't have like any large support, any large organizations, uh, nothing like that. Um, and the New Orleans consul, when it came to areas outside of New Orleans and outside of Louisiana, they really refused help. Um, they just suggested either going back to Mexico or just like sort of kind of just like dismiss all of their uh, complaints beforehand for any like Mexican immigrants in the area that were uh, receiving like unfair labor rights and stuff. Um, so uh, for some reason, uh, when he appealed to the New Orleans consul, um, they were actually interested in his case. Uh, partially because, like, it would um, offer a boost to the Mexican identity and, uh, like, again, be seen as them claiming themselves to be white. Uh, like I mentioned before, uh, Landorva was claimed, at least on the census, to be Cuban and not Mexican. Mexican. Yes. Uh, and he was also claiming that his wife was as of Spaniard origin uh, instead of Mexican, um, which no one would really, like, investigate or, like, say that he was wrong. Well, that's so interesting. So he appeals to the Mexican consul in New Orleans to help him out because all of a sudden the school board decides to enforce this rule that the white school is only for whites and tries to like kick his children out and get them to go to the black school. So he, he enlists the help of the Mexican consul even though he's claiming that his wife's Spanish and that he's Cuban. So that's a whole lot of, like, interesting dynamics going on there. But does he end up succeeding? Do his kids end up attending the white school? Or are they forced to kind of, like, abide by that ruling and go to the to the black school? Uh, they actually did end up going to the white school. Um, honestly, all it took was a letter from the Mexican government um, to the governor of the area uh to the governor of mississippi my fall um and the following fall they were enrolled into the school you know it's it's kind of crazy for me to 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 hear like this this struggle in regards to to really education specifically with his kids i think you know it's it's something that we still see today whether it's college access but really in regards to like even just going to an elementary school or something like that. I was at a, I was at a like a school board meeting, uh, kind of in my hometown, and it was it was kind of the first time that something like that had happened where like we had the school board and there were like a lot of um, parents who came in and it was really like a listening session where they got to like hear like what do parents need and you know just that dynamic is is so hard because those parents are there and like there's this challenge of translating like what parents are saying just because language translating like what the school system is to them so that they understand and so you know despite like you know we're maybe in a different time from Landrove and saying oh your kid can't go to this school but then at the same time so we don't we don't have that right now but we have certain groups in certain schools uh certain you know in, in terms of like if you're poor or if you're not poor if you have more money you're in certain places in certain neighborhoods and so you know this this idea of accessing let's say an education even though it's changed a bit is still rarely present uh in you know where you live and where you go to school and uh it's I'm not sure how active our our parents can be even though there's not segregation here. Yeah, absolutely. In that way. I it, I think you're right that this kind of like 
ongoing struggle to kind of like provide the best for ourselves and and for in this case of the of these immigrants and like even like our parents like providing the best for yourself and for your kids in terms of education accessing the best schools and even though the segregation that we see isn't you know enforced by law Mm -hmm. you kind of alluded to um, segregation that happens because of like where you live so like if you live near like all the like poor trailer parks or you live like in one of the poor trailer parks you're gonna end up going to a school that has like less funding one bus stop exactly (laughs) exactly yeah the one bus stop where the entire bus gets full um but so and you and you kind of said you know what can our parents do like is there a lot that they can do so we saw that rafael for his kids he kind of um petitioned the mexican government while at the same time he kind of did like a uh what is it called like a two a two-part strategy where i on one hand he's kind of appealing to the mexican government and on the other hand he's like i'm not mexican i'm cuban and my wife is from spain so he's kind of like taking this like approach where he's making the best use of being mexican by appealing to the government and then at the same time combating you know um bad connotations of being mexican by telling the people around him actually i'm cuban and my wife is from spain whereas right now like so that was i guess like one approach that someone in the mississippi delta early 19th century took to kind of like try to fight for these resources how do you think that um our parents as immigrants and other immigrants can kind of like try to fight for those resources for their kids today i think well or how do you, or how do you see it honestly or not? honestly you know i feel like sometimes it takes generations like not generations in terms of uh like parents to well yes in that sense like i think if there's someone who came here years ago I think you start learning and adapting to the system. But for my family specifically, there's a huge difference between kind of the experience my parents had with me at school, for example, versus my little sister. Uh, And there's a big difference in terms of like where you go. So, for example, we lived in a kind of more rural setting for like the first elementary middle school for me. And that was very different in the school I was at. You know, if there was ever someone who spoke Spanish at that school versus uh, kind of moving to more city type place in Durham. And then uh, my sister has a school that, uh, well, it's basically kind of dual language. So they try to incorporate Spanish. So her Spanish, my little sister's Spanish became an asset rather than something that was, you know, leaving her in ESL for till seventh grade, mm. uh, like uh, another family member of mine had. So I think um, some strategies sometimes it like is moving. Uh, I, we moved from New York. We moved down to, to Charlotte. We've moved all around uh, kind of the South. And so I think word of mouth is how sometimes as an immigrant you get to know where the jobs are or you get to know where the schools are um and i think we see that today so you're saying a lot of it is kind of just like these informal mechanisms of trying to kind of like figure out the system like okay um if you live on this side of the road you're gonna end up going to that (laughs) school if you live on that side of the road you're gonna end up going to that school so i want my kids to live on that side so let's try to use that address if we can't move like stuff like that i guess but and so but it's not really um appealing to you know foreign countries back where they are where they came from or kind of like um appealing to uh laws i don't know yeah i mean okay so brian you and i are hondurans right Mm -hmm. would you in any way (laughs) think to ask like um 
Honduras for help or your family or those who are your family who are immigrants, would they consider that as an option? That honestly, like even from even like back then, that was like incredibly unheard of. Like for here, um, in a way, like we do feel very isolated. Like we have we have like the whole like, of course, we can say we're Honduran at home. Right. Um, and we can say we're Honduran outside of home. Uh but it doesn't give us any more leeway other than just like that asset you were talking about. The same as speaking Spanish, you're also from somewhere else. Um, and it's it's sort of funny just like um, uh, the only help so so that we can get like from that word of mouth is the communities that we make where we move. Um, because like whenever my mom needs advice on like where to send her kids for school – or where she she moved to next, what job she goes, she goes to church. Mm. Because that's where <laughs> she can find, like, the most uh, Latina moms is like, oh, my kid did this. Yeah. Oh, my kid's in, like, second grade, but, like, your 10th grade kid, like, he can probably do the same thing. Mm. Uh, and it's just, like, trying to make use of all the information that you've gathered so far uh, over time. So. Yeah, so, so, I so guess. So what I'm hearing is yeah, not ahead. a lot of petitioning. Uh, and even, I mean, I would agree. I would say I... My, I don't think my parents would have ever thought of kind of like asking the Mexican government back home yeah. for help, but we're not yeah. politicians. <laughs> yeah, so so I wanted to kind of ask, what was the context for for Mississippi? Like, why you know why was it so so much more isolated? This is 1920s, 1930s, right? Uh, yeah. So, um, like like we started like uh, most of this like uh, Mexican Latin immigration uh, into the U.S. was mostly recorded early 20th century. Um, and uh, being very close to the border, of course, like that's where most Mexicans and Latin Americans would go. Um, but as soon as we get into Mississippi, where we don't have that representation like uh, there was in New Orleans with the consul, um, then it is a job of like trying to build that up. Uh, Mississippi didn't embrace its history of Spanish and French colonization like New Orleans did. It was, it was very black-white binary. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so... Um, while it was very easy and, like, almost, uh, well, it was very easy to, like, land on the white side of Jim Crow in New Orleans when uh, they got to Mississippi, the black side is, like, what most, like, elite white farmers or farm owners would, like, see. Um, because instead of, like, the middle class that would have stayed in New Orleans, the labor that was accepted was labor that would help in the fields. So as Mississippi's main product was cotton. Um, like what they wanted was low cost labor mm-hmm. and that's what was coming in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because from before the low cost labor came from African Americans, uh, through slavery. And then after that into sharecropping, um, so it's easy to just like bunch them together in one group. So this is, this is Mexican sharecroppers, yes. which is, this is not something you probably think about. Yeah. And now we'd like to take a little break and thank our sponsors This podcast is produced by Ricky Hurtado, Eric Valera, and Julie Wise with generous sponsorship from the Whiting Foundation, the University of Oregon College of Arts and Sciences, and Latinx Ed, edited by Dorian Gomez. And so now um, I'd like to kind of tell a little story about hustling and how we kind of start hustling at a young (laughs) age. So... Um, in middle school, I well all K through twelve except for like senior year, I rode the bus, and so on the bus I noticed that some girls started selling like candy, like 
Reese's, um, Hershey's, Snickers and stuff to students, and they um, were making, like, pretty good profit. Like, they were, like, selling to a bunch of students, like, in class, on the bus, airheads, like, all that kind of stuff. And so then I thought, you know, I want to... I want to make money too. Like I need to like I, I'm trying to make money, but I didn't want to like steal their idea. Like I was like I don't want to just show up the next day and like be selling like the same things they are. Can't split the market. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then you know it's kind of like I had this intuitive like hmm like what's one thing that people really want that is not like the airheads or like the the chocolate. So it clicked and I was like Taki. It's like I need to start selling Taki. So I make my parents take me to the store called the Tropicana, and I get like a bunch of little mini size like Takis bags. And each bag had like like twenty um Takis bags and it cost like ten dollars. And so then I sell each little bag for one dollar. So I was like making like good, good profit. And my business got so <laughs> successful that people were like chasing me down in the hallways. Like and I was very little in middle school. Like hey, how old were you? This is I was like eleven. School? Yeah, I was like okay. eleven, twelve, and I was very little. I I had like think about like the body and like size of like a nine year old. Mm. And I was so little and so I was walking around with these tackies like in my book bag and there was times like there was one this one girl that was like the bell had rang like we had to go to class and she was coming after me like she wanted the takis and she was like coming after me with like a dollar in her hand and she was like like you got takis like you got takis <laughs> and I was like going to class cause you know I've always been scared of like being late to class like I've always been like, scared of like not being a good student Aww. so I'm just like I can't like I have to go to class and she like follows me into class and like we're starting class and like the teacher's like teaching and stuff and she's like standing there beside my desk like like tienes los taquis like give me the taquis and then I had to like sell, oh, like man. quickly give them to her and then like there was other times whenever I was like like the teacher would say like oh can you like go make copies of like this worksheet or something and so I'd go to like the copy room and like be making copies and people would walk by the hallway and they would see that I was in the copy room and they'd be like hey you got takis and mm -hmm. I would be like they're not on me like they're my book <laughs> like, you got that good stuff yeah I got that good stuff like but yeah it was a very very profitable profitable business that's pretty good yeah, mm -hmm. some real contraband yeah <laughs> Por eso estamos como It estamos. got too stressful though, so then I had to, you know, take a little break. <laughs> But, so, I just kind of want to highlight then... They're in New Orleans, they were going into the white side of Jim Crow. Here in the Mississippi Delta, they're going into the African... They're enduring a lot of the same treatment as African-Americans um, as sharecroppers. And so this the strategy that Rafael Landrove used to get his kids into the white schools, was that typical then? If they're getting kind of like the 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 they're not falling on the white side of Jim Crow anymore, so then was kind of like what Rafael did, was that typical of other immigrants or I think you mentioned earlier was kind of like an anomaly? Uh yes. Um so uh considering like of course it wasn't, um just because like the history of uh Latinos in Mississippi is relatively new. Um, so you have, they had to like reconstruct uh, their own image of what it was to be Mexican. Um, and of course that meant looking for help in places that have already like um, been able to like uh, make their own definition of uh, what it was to be Mexican. And that's what led them to New Orleans because if anybody could, Uh, check white on the census regardless of like what part of Mexico they're from then why shouldn't he be able to like also benefit from that yeah. what do you check on the census Daisy well I can tell you I don't check white I 
No, I actually, I don't think so. Going, Rafael Landrove, like he very, him, he and like a lot of the immigrants in the Mississippi Delta, they understood what it meant to be getting placed um, on the like black side of Jim Crow. They understood that that was not the way that was kind of like going to get them access to all these resources. And so they like rallied against it. And here we have this example of Rafael, who's trying really, really hard to not be lumped into that. And when he sees that Mexicans are being lumped into the same category as blacks who are enduring um, these like Jim Crow like discrimination, then he tries to say, "Okay, no, I'm Cuban, but also I need some help from the Mexican government. And I think it's kind of like this ongoing pursuit of whiteness, of wanting to be labeled white so that you can attend the white, so that your kids can attend the white school and so you can have like better resources. And I think like the notion of, of having to pick white or having to say, okay, like I'll be labeled white so long as I get to enjoy so-and-so or not face X, Y, Z like discrimination. And I think like for me, I think about, all like what it's historically meant to be white and so whenever I like come across the census form or just like a survey or something that you know for race it only has like it never you know being Latina being Mexican that's considered like more of like an ethnicity it's not it's not a race you can be any race and be Latina but so whenever I see white I just I cannot I cannot check white because I don't I don't enjoy well I I'm let's say on a on the streets, when I'm walking, like, on the streets, like, I don't, and I don't, when you see me, you don't think white, you know, you think Mexican, or you, I'm not white, um, perhaps in certain spaces, um, like, if I am in a room full of, like, I don't know, like, professors, and we're, let's say we're in a more, like, academic setting, then maybe I get to enjoy some of the privileges, but at the same time, I'm not considered white, so I just... I can never bring myself to say, to check why. I'll rather leave it blank, and then if I can't leave it blank, then I just won't fill out the form. Just because I just, I I don't think that that's something I'm willing to, to do. But of course, when we're talking about, like, Rafael and his kids, um, different time period, like, different strategy. Um, but as for me, just, like, no, I can't, I can't check yeah. why. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, just as there, it was a dilemma back then, years ago um i think it continues to be you know not only between let's say where latinos uh, fit into like the black white binary but also where our like our own community stands on that issue um you know i think so my my kind of response to a similar question that i posed to you is that my family uh in, in honduras it has there's a large population of of garifuna which is kind of um culturally ethnic black um group mostly like on the north of honduras and so that's kind of the population that's i'm familiar with and then my my whole family has like you know this kind of native history just from being from the americas but then i'm white passing so whenever like it's about race or whatever in my mind i'm always like it's a mix it's a whole mess and it's a whole whole shebang and so like that's kind of how i like definitely like rationalize when i see those that list of like options but then 
like where I have this identification that I'm like being placed as something specifically is it's the next question after that. It's like, are you Hispanic or Latino? And then, and so like, especially in the U S and as an immigrant in the U S I think that's where like my experience with being put into that box kind of happens because, because sometimes I don't even see it as like Hispanic or Latino as an immigrant. I see it almost as even undocumented (laughs) or like documented citizen, because that's like, I don't know. I just feel like that's how it gets tracked more often. And, you know, in, when it talks to about um, when it's regards to like access to education or, or even a job or something, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like that's just counting us like Hispanics because that typically in this country or Mexican typically translates to also immigrant. And you bring up a good point about how for you, it's what's more salient is rather immigration status. Um, and I think that also, I think, plays a determining role in access to education and access to resources more so than whether you identify as um, XYZ race or ethnicity. Perhaps what's more determ- what determines that more is immigration status at this point. Um, I don't know if, Brian, you have anything you want to comment on that. Do you think that that's more salient or what do you think is, I guess, one of the biggest identity markers that kind of separate that access or lack of? Uh, So um, I guess like the first thing people do think about is uh, just like, what do you look like? Um, Just like when you're considering like white passing, second thing could be like the sound of your voice. And um, then of course it comes down to like what you put on paper. Right. Mm. Um, So, uh, when anyone can just like check other or like check Hispanic, Latino, and like they are counting us, it does really feel like it's such a good image for them to be like counting us. Like, how many have like we got left to take out of this country, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. And uh, it's it's like a weird desperation because like you want, you want to be in this country because of the opportunity and you don't exactly want to blend in with everyone else. Um, you want to keep everything that you brought over. Um, because like that journey was hard. Like, uh, it's really, um, like on the news, like, well, well, first off, when you come to the census, like it's supposed to be data that the U S uses for whatever demographic reasons they want. Um, and when you see us on the news, anyone like crossing over the border, it's like reduced to like a sentence and nothing else, not where you're from. Like there might be caravan or whatever, uh, so when it comes to like that marker on like, like how people define us, like, I'd say, yes, first it is like what we look like, then what we sound like, then what we claim to be on paper. What is your experience with, uh, kind of either with, with, with family or how, how you identified or your experience, let's say even kind of with speaking English, I feel like that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. So, um, I am a first generation college student, first generation, like, um, like immigrant, uh, through my mom coming over in like 1984. And like, um, for me, it's been like this weird struggle where growing up, uh, like learning about things that were happening in the news, um, like I would sort of like refuse to be called American in any way. If anyone asks, I'm Honduran. And, like, as soon as my mom found out about this, she's like, well, no, 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 you were born here, you are American. And 
she like she doesn't have any concept of like Latinx or like Honduran Americans or like that whole spiel. Um, so like, uh, after I get this talk, like I think about all the times that I like went through and checked other on like any data thing, um, and like I can't really go back and just like tell everyone like yo. I was kidding like <laughs> that's not me um and then like other half of me is like well I do want to say that is me because that's what I feel like um so like and when uh, you say when you what is you the other box uh, or what <laughs> <laughs> the other box yeah basically um because like uh no one no one explains this right unless you absolutely know you're from a different country no one explains what you're supposed to do when you're like that first generation here um because, like, even though technically white people are European-Americans, no matter how many ger- generations they've been here, like, um, what are you supposed to call yourself? How long are you supposed to wait? Is there, like, are they going to send it in the mail? Like, yeah. Um, it's sort of just, like, a really confusing time. Yeah. I think just kind of last point. I think, you know, in regards to access, access in this country has largely been defined by, you know, for some groups and and you know not for some others and i think for immigrants or latinos in the south we've we've dealt a lot with kind of this racial dynamic and sometimes this proximity to blackness is sometimes what we try to evade but there's a cost to saying oh we're not part of the group and eventually like like now as immigrants we become also the the receivers of, of a lot of this discrimination and so i think uh, there's kind of this dilemma that, you know, Landrove had to face, but we're still facing it today. And, you know, I think there's maybe different ways to face it. I'm just not exactly sure if we all have the answers. Let us know if you think you have um, the answers. If, what do you think about Rafael Landrove, um, how he chose to identify as Cuban and constantly bring up his wife, um, supposedly like being of Spanish origin, appealing to the Mexican consul for help. But it was all for access to schools. Um, let us know what you think about what we have to do nowadays to access those kinds of resources. Um, thank you for listening. Let us know what you think about this episode. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcast, And of course, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And lastly, be sure to like our Facebook page. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.